You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. I'm so glad you're here today. I hope you are too by the end of today. As you've been well prepared, uh, today is all about the uh, night of the honeymoon when the couple in our story consummates the wedding. So if you have not made a decision to exit, now would be the last chance that you have. So I remember it was August the 14th, 1999, Robert Matthew Nickerson, that's my name, and Rachel Mobley, sorry, Rachel Renee Mobley, came together on a stage in a church and said, I do. And I, whoa, I'm so glad that happened now. <laughs> 24, a little over 24 years ago. And the reason I say that is because I remember we got married in Louisville and a family friend had a place in Indianapolis. We actually came to Indianapolis the night of our wedding, stayed overnight here as God would have it later, didn't know we'd come back here. We went to church that next Sunday at Chapel Rock Christian Church who uh, planted our church 50 years ago. Just all these cool little connections. And uh, a family friend had given us a place in, uh, said, literally looked at it, said, give us a timeshare. Said, just pick a place where there's a lot of timeshares because you're not the member. If you get kicked out, you could jump to another place. So we looked on a map. We're like, we want to be in the ocean. Oh, look, here's an island. And so we went to a place called Galveston. What I didn't know was Galveston is part of Texas, and Texas is not a place you ever really care to visit. And, um, you know, but I was with my bride for a week, and it was great to be with her. We literally got married, came back to Ohio, Kentucky, said goodbye to our families, and moved to Colorado. Literally got like the smallest rental truck you could get, loaded all of our stuff up in the truck, it wasn't much, and drove out to Colorado. And for a year after that, anytime anybody at the church would come up to us and say, oh, you're the intern, you know, here, blah, 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 and we'd be, they'd meet us, I would say, yes, and this is my wife, Rachel Mobley. And they would be looking at me like, I thought you just said your name was Matt Nickerson. And my wife would look at them and extend her hand and say, hi, I'm Rachel Nickerson. And I felt like such an idiot. Now, the reason that is because it took time for the two of us to figure out how to make these two separate things one. But today, let's talk about how to make these two separate things one in a very, very intimate kind of way. The idea of oneness was actually God's idea. He created this thing that we have since labeled sex. I'm just going to say it. Ooh, Mufasa. All right. Now, <laughs> now, the reason I'm saying that and getting it out there is because I want to build on this idea. What does the Bible say about sex? And we're going to look at literally the most erotic and romantic text in the entire Bible. And uh, it is very, very, very graphic. And uh, there'll be certain parts I go, guys, just use your imagination. Let's keep going. All right. So, but let's start with this. We've got to lay a foundation. We're going to build on the foundation. Sex was created by God to be a bonding experience so powerful that two separate things could become one through this moment. That was the goal. That was the end game. Marriage is more than sex. Anybody who's married knows exactly what I'm talking about. But we cannot deduce or reduce, not deduce, reduce what sex is in a marriage. This idea of oneness is so powerful that in the very beginning, we have Adam and he's alone. I talked about this last week. You get more out of these messages if you come week after week after week, by the way. I lay foundations I build on it weeks before. And so God puts Adam into a deep sleep, pulls a rib out of his side, and he makes Eve. Adam wakes up and he sees his naked wife and he goes, whoa, man, good job, God. And then 
And then I mean, he sings a love song over her. It's not bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. He does poetry over her. And uh, then the Bible says, for this reason, a man leaves his father and his mother, Genesis 2, 24, and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is pointing specifically to sex, although it is talking about so much more than sex. Becoming one, sharing a name, sharing a bank account, sharing a bed, sharing kids, sharing a life, sharing your drink at every single meal for the rest of your life. These are things that marriages are built off of, but they are absolutely built in this moment. This idea is so powerful, it's carried throughout the scriptures. I don't even have time to cover all of them, but if you just fast forward to the New Testament, to the Gospels, Jesus is being asked questions about marriage and sexuality, and he literally says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 8, and the two will become one flesh. Sound familiar? He's quoting Genesis 2, 24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So a couple things. This We pull out of this little text a couple things. Number one, God intended for sex to be in marriage, not outside of marriage, between one man and one woman for life until death do us part. That's the ideal. Throughout today, we're talking about the ideal. We accept that there is something other than the ideal oftentimes going on. But in an ideal world, this is what it looks like. This is what God created it for. This is what God desires. This is what God wants. Paul, who comes after Jesus, he's a prophet of God, an apostle, and he actually builds on this, and he says this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become, say it with me, one flesh. Do you see that now? This consistent biblical ethic. Anybody who says that, uh, that Jesus, for instance, doesn't ever talk about um, heterosexual marriage, they are not reading their Bibles the way Jesus intended for you to read it. He talks about it very clearly. Anybody who says the Bible doesn't actually say that God intended for you to wait until you're married, you aren't reading it right. If you desire to pick apart the Bible and find what it didn't say exactly the way you needed to hear it to accept it, then you'll never find the Bible saying anything about anything because it's written 2,000 years ago and you have to read it in the way that they meant for it to be read. And this isn't just a translation issue. It's not just Matt's opinion. Just tell me what those verses say for yourself, and then you can wrestle with God. This is why Jesus often says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So if I have a hard heart and deaf ears, and I don't want to hear and receive what God says to me, I won't. And you could do that for the rest of your life. That's fine. But if you want to have a soft heart and open ears and learn from what God has for you, you will hear exactly what he has for you. So what does God desire of sex? God desires for sex to be this beautiful, I can't talk, beautifully designed thing to foster oneness in marriage. Beautifully, beautifully designed. When you come together and everything is clicking and, and happening on all cylinders, which we will talk about in a minute, we get to songs of songs, when everything is happening just right, both people are feeling loved and cherished and fulfilled, their needs are being met in physically, sexually, emotionally, relationally, everything is working just right. And this moment is designed. Years ago, I read an article, and I like to call it, I don't remember what the article was called, but I like to call it the red hat analogy. And here's the way that the article goes. I've used this before, but imagine a person who is consuming pornography. So they are taking the ideal of sex and cheapening it to something else. And they've got this red hat sitting on the corner of their computer screen. Now, what happens is, and guys, I'm just going to use the words that we use in culture. I'm not trying to be crude or crass, but I'm just going to keep going. All right. So at the moment in which you have an orgasm, that sexual release happens. Somebody just laughed. At the moment when that happens, what happens in that moment 
they say is chemically stronger than a cocaine high. A thousand times stronger. Now let that sink in for a second because most of us in this room, there'll be some exceptions, most of us have never experienced a cocaine high. So most of us really don't know what that analogy means. But I do know this. If you read anything about cocaine, you can use it one time and be addicted because it's that strong. And every time you use it, the bond gets stronger, the chemical bond. So the red hat analogy goes like this. If you are watching a computer screen, there's a red hat hanging over the corner. Whatever it is you're looking at, there's actually a a bond being built into your brain about what you're seeing. So this is how addictions, and you might even use the word, although I'm not an expert in this word, fetishes get developed. Because what happens is, the moment the chemical release comes out, you're literally locking in the image as the thing that excited you to where what happens often, and people that I talk to, is over time, as they're engaging in these images, they become to where they can only get aroused by certain images. And so the red hat analogy plays out that if you were to have that red hat sitting there, then what can happen is you could literally, if you were to do this, you could walk down the street and see somebody wearing a red hat and become aroused simply by seeing a red hat. That's how strong the chemical release is to whatever it is you're consuming at the moment of that release. Now, I want you to think about the beauty of how God designed sex. Imagine two people together, naked. It's not dark in the room. Yes, screams of joy. And what is happening in this moment is there is a man and a woman gazing at each other. And there's this Sexual release, and the endorphins are flowing, and, and, and the dopamine is rushing in the brain. It's a thousand times stronger than cocaine. And now what you're seeing is your wife or your husband's naked body. And now when you see them, you become aroused. Instead of cheapening it to something else that you see or someone else that you see, there is this bond, this crazy, powerful bond between the two of you. Man, that's almost like God knew what he was doing. Now, think about this for a minute, because like any good gift from God, if sex is a good gift from God, it can be cheapened, and it can be abused, and it can be turned into sin. Think about this for a minute. If, uh, is food good? I mean, most food is good, right? <laughs> There's bad food out there, right? You don't want, I can burn cereal. You do not want me to cook for you. It is a bad, <laughs> bad story. But when food is good, can you abuse food? Of course, right? Is Dessert good? Is chocolate cake good? Of course it is. Can you eat too much chocolate cake? Of course, of course. Take any good gift from God. Is money good? Oh, I don't know. The Bible says money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is evil. Money can be a good gift. You need money to eat and you need money to put a roof over your head, right? You need money to, to have clothing, right? So money can be good, but can, does abuse of money ever happen? Does greed or power or selfishness represent it? Of course it can. And that's the point. Every good gift from God can be abused. This is why Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he says this, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Do you hear it? The consistency of Scripture on this is overwhelming. Overwhelming. 
But what Paul's trying to say here, I don't have time to unpack all this. I've done it in other sermons. But in the city of Corinth, that's where we get the book of Corinthians, it's a seaport city. So if you wanted to do business in a seaport city and you were coming from another town, you'd hop on a ship, you'd bring the goods and the resources from that town, you'd get in the ship, you'd port there in Corinth, you'd get out, you'd sell your goods, and then you had lots of money. But you also had a lot of men who were out at sea and they were lonely. So they'd come to the city and right on the top of the hill is this temple to, I can't remember, I think it's Diana. And uh, people would go up there and there were temple prostitutes. And it was expected if you wanted Diana to be on your side, then you had to go up and make a sacrifice. And part of making that sacrifice is to sleep with the temple prostitutes. And I read somewhere that when business was slow, sometimes these prostitutes would come down out of the temple into the city streets looking for married men, single men, any man they could take up to get raise money to get money for the temple. And that's what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, listen, when you become one with Jesus, your body is not your own. It belongs to Jesus. Don't you know, if you go up there to that temple and you unite yourself with her, you're becoming one with her in flesh. Everybody knows something happens in the act of sex that is more than just an experience of excitement and a sharing of chemicals and fluids. It is so much more. And you know that because when you do it, doesn't it make the relationship harder to walk away from? Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of evil people. It's not just men, but there are plenty of evil people in the world who just take advantage of others for their own benefit. But for those who love Jesus, once this happens, doesn't it make it harder when they don't return the call? Doesn't it make it harder to break off the relationship way past when you know you should have? Doesn't it make everything more complicated? And see, I think this is where the church, by and large, has, has not done a service to Christians for 2,000 years. Because everything I just said is kind of where we have stopped talking about it. Basically, what we've said is, don't, for 2,000 years. And when I was growing up in the uh, 90s, let's call it, <laughs> in the 90s of church youth group world, there was something that, that was called, uh, what was it called? Uh, now I'm drawing a complete blank on what it was called. It was the promise. And uh, everybody went and got these promise rings, right? Before you're married, we put these promise rings on and we signed these little commitment forms. And we, we said, yes, I'm gonna wait until I'm married. And the unintended consequence of that was, well, for those who messed up and did something outside of marriage that they were damaged goods, they were broken goods. And I, I was guilty as a youth pastor of kind of continuing this unhealthy message around sexuality because we never really prepared people for sexuality. Now that I do premarital counseling and I do weddings, and sometimes I just do premarital counseling without the wedding, and people come to me with a variety of experiences, from no experience to lots of experiences. But what I find is, at least the rest of today's message is consistent for everybody. Everybody needs these reminders that God's word actually gives us some great wisdom on sex, and it's good, it's good. But what happens if I come into marriage and I've got two virgins, as the Bible says we should be, and they don't know what they're doing. If what you've been told your whole life is wait, 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 then you'll get married and everything will be great. You'll have all the sex you want, whenever you want, it'll always be wonderful. <clears throat> and then you find out that wasn't the story. That sometimes sex was painful or awkward or that you came into the moment and you didn't know what you were doing and they didn't either and... Or you came into the moment, you found out and you didn't know it at the moment, or maybe you knew, but you didn't really understand that they had a, a, a past. And that past was gonna affect that moment. Maybe they were hurt or abused or traumatized, or maybe they had many experiences. What would be the expectation and the thought and what would it look like and what would it be like? 
I love Tim Keller. He's one of my favorite authors, pastor. He just passed away this year. God rest his soul. What a great man. Made a huge difference in this world. But he wrote a book on marriage. And I love this. In his book on marriage, he says this. Kathy and I, that's his wife, were virgins when we married. Even in our day, that may have been the minority experience. But that meant that on our wedding night, we were not in any position to try to impress or entice one another. All we were trying to do was to tenderly express with our bodies the oneness we had first begun feeling as friends and which had then had grown stronger and deeper as we fell in love. Frankly, that night I was a clumsy and awkward and fell asleep anxious and discouraged. Anybody else know exactly what it feels like? Feel free not to raise your hand. Okay. (laughs) Sex was frustrating at first, he says. It was the frustration, though, of an artist who has in his head a picture or a story but lacks the skills to express it. Shouldn't we expect that a God who loves us, by the way, he's the only God. I don't mean like a God like there's many, but God who loves us would help coach us on what this could look like if it were gonna be beautiful. I'm so thankful that God didn't just say, don't and then do, all right, see ya. But he said, wait, now go. Here's some tips for when you go. And that's really what today's text is about. All of that's just the setup. We have another 45 minute sermon from here on out. I'm just kidding. But before I, (laughs) it'll be brief. Okay, so. um, Chapter four, let's keep moving. Chapter four, chapter four, hang on, hang on. <laughs> oh, Lord, okay. Chapter four is graphic detail about the wedding night, okay? But before I get into chapter four, you've gotta remember this. Men, if you forget everything else I say, get this one thing. And before I say it, before I say it, I had multiple men come up to me afterwards and thank me. Thank me for this piece of advice. Ready? Here we go. In Songs of Songs, the wife speaks first, the wife speaks last, the wife speaks most, except when it comes to the moment they make love. Think that in for a minute, guys. See, where many men struggle is most of life is about performance. Most of life is about accomplishment, getting a task done. That doesn't mean there aren't women wired that way. But therefore, when you come to this moment, you want to get down to business. And it's not, (laughs) one couple said to me after last service, "Uh, you know, there is times when it's just good to get down to business. I get that. Marriage is awesome for all the reasons that marriage is awesome. But men, I want you to slow down, take your time, learn from Solomon. Open your mouth in this moment and use your words the way Solomon is about to. Let's jump in, chapter four, verse one. He says to her, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. (laughs) Man, you might wanna take notes, (laughs) but you might wanna freshen it up to today. Oh, it gets better. So notice here, remember all the way back in chapter one, I believe it was, she says to him, um, my brothers have forced me to work into, in the vineyards. And so I've been out working hard under the sun. And so my skin is baked, but I have no, I've had no time for my own vineyard. Remember, so she was expressing to him her anxiety. Look, I, I'm a hardworking woman. 
I don't have the time to take care of my body because I am being a hard-working woman. Notice the very first words out of his mouth are not, your skin's a little darker than I would have liked. (laughs) Instead, the words are, oh, you are beautiful. And we joke about the, the, the goats, right? The flock of goats. I mean, come on, it's hilarious, but think about it for a second. I went over to Israel and I saw this. There, there are plains and then there are hills. We live in Indiana, it's all plains. Until you go down to Nashville and then it's all plains again. And so we don't really have a visual for this. But when you're over there, you can see for miles and miles and miles and it'd be flat and the rolling hills and flat and the rolling hills and everything's on a hill or on a valley. So imagine for a minute that you're standing in a valley place and you're looking up and a, a big flock of goats comes running over the hills And imagine they're just kind of following the lead of whoever's in charge. They're running over the hills. He's just talking about her hair is flowing down. Perhaps there's a slight curl to it. There's a little bit of a wave in it. It's this beautiful thing coming down the hill. He's not literally saying her hair is like goats. It's a beautiful image. But the next one's even better. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Basically, what he's saying is, you got all your teeth in their white, baby. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> I get it. She has bad teeth. No. So, you know, we're talking almost 3,000 years ago in history. We know that she's a, she's a farm girl and a country girl. She worked in the vineyard. She's from the wilderness. We've covered all of that already in the series. So, what does a poor girl from 3,000 years ago without any kind of dental coverage, (laughs) what kind of teeth would you expect that woman to have? He is simply celebrating something that actually stands out on her. You have all your teeth and they are very white. The next one, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Okay, so a few things here. For one, he's just looking at her lips. Remember, if her skin is dark and complected, but yet her lips pop with red. Perhaps she's put on some sort of lipstick or something that makes them pop, or maybe they're just beautiful and lush. He is adoring her mouth. Oh, you just have the nicest of lips. Later, he's going to talk about kissing them. We'll get to that in just a moment, because he's not done adoring his wife. He's not done cherishing her beauty. The house of a pomegranate, the, the here it says the temples, the ESV translates this, the cheeks. I think it's because the Hebrew word really just means something in this range. And it actually, you'll know in your, if you have a printed Bible, it'll say, it's just a hard Hebrew phrase. Nobody knows exactly what it's saying, but it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about this part of her body or this part of her body. The whole idea here is he's looking at her face and he's celebrating her face. Your face is beautiful. And he's finding something. Oh, it's like, it's like halves of a pomegranate. You just have a, you have a round face <laughs> and a beautiful face. You just have a beautiful, beautiful face. And he goes on and says, your neck is like a tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Throughout much of history, a longer neck was celebrated as beautiful. And he's just celebrating. Your neck is tall. She probably has some sort of necklace. It's referenced later, some sort of chain necklace or something perhaps on her neck. But he's just looking at it and going, you have an amazing neck. Now, if you want to Google this later, you'll see it better. But uh, an artist took all of the passage in Songs of Solomon and just created a conglomeration of what she would have looked like. And she's just stunning. I mean, take a look at this picture. (laughs) Can you flash it up? There we go. I mean, you can see the sheep for teeth, the goats for hair, the neck. All right, we're having some fun with this because we're about to move into the awkward face. This was all funny. 
But if you get it, he went from hair and eyes to cheeks and lips and teeth. Which direction are we headed? Neck? Verse five. Somebody said arm. Thank you. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Somebody told me, don't use that voice when reading this. It's creepy. (laughs) I would come back from CIY with just an exhausted voice, and I would sound like I could do a jazz radio host. And my wife was like, oh, would you talk to me? Like, yes, baby. I don't want to go too deep because I don't want to awaken love in anybody who's single or are high school students with us today. I'm being serious. Like, I really am. But, okay. I mean, use your imagination. There's two things that the commentaries that I read pointed out. Number one, um, there's three things. There's two of them. That's good. Um, Number two, fawns have a lot of energy and are quite bouncy. And number three... (laughs) If you see a fawn in the woods, you'd love to go and pet it. So verse (laughs) six, verse six. Oh my goodness, are we doing this? (laughs) Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. So a few things. Number one, he's saying, baby, I just want to enjoy you all night long. Isn't that a great thing for a husband to say to his wife? She might be saying, can we sleep a little? They're on their honeymoon. They don't have kids. They don't have a job. They don't have anything to worry about. It's just about being together and enjoying each other. And all of this has become reference from stuff that's happened earlier, but there's a lot of this. Again, I'm not gonna go deeply into what various commentaries think they're talking about. Use your imagination. Verse seven, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Again, what's he coming back to? He's coming back to, remember, she feels insecure in this moment. I have not met every woman in the world. And when I have met the women I have met, we don't sit down and talk about this stuff. But I would guess that most women in this room and many watching online feel anxious about their bodies. How wonderful of Solomon to take time to draw out and call out her beauty and her sensuality, and to let her know, baby, all those thoughts running through your mind, all those anxieties, you are flawless. Years ago, I used to carry it around as a youth pastor, I had, but nowadays it'd be so dated. I had an article, it was an interview with um, like Cindy Crawford and uh, somebody, Evangelista, I can't remember her name, and then it had um, Tyra Banks, and I think there was one more person, and it was, an, it was an interview with them. In the interview, they were asking them is there any part of your body you wish were different? And here, for back in that day, I gotta get it, it's 20 something years ago, these women who were considered the most beautiful women in the world went line by line, item by item. When they look in the mirror, every flaw they could see in their body. I wish I had so-and-so's hips. I wish I had so-and-so's lips. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. And I think many women, probably some exceptions in this room, feel that way. So when they come into the moment, part of what may keep them from coming to this moment is their insecurity about how they look. And they don't feel good enough. They don't measure up. Now, one woman said to me, actually many, many women said to me over the years when we're doing pastoral counseling, you know, intimacy doesn't begin in the bedroom. I think that's what a lot of guys think. But intimacy begins outside the bedroom. 
All of this talk is amazing in the bedroom, but what if it were to begin outside? Now, part of what we have is we have this pornification of America. And part of the pornification of America is men love to talk about women, but they talk about them in sexualized and graphic ways, ways that don't make women feel special and beautiful, ways that don't talk about their beauty and their majesty, if you will, but instead focuses on the sexualized parts of their body. In fact, years ago, I read this book, and um, this lady was coaching women who have sexual brokenness in their marriage with their husbands, and <clears throat> each chapter is like another lady writing a letter, and then she gives wisdom. And one of the ladies who wrote to her, I just remember this, she says, when we come to be intimate, when we come to have sex, all he ever does is focus immediately on my private areas, on my sexualized areas. He doesn't talk at all about the rest of me. He doesn't touch at all the rest of me. And I believe what that illustrates is that we live in a culture that has been trained to focus only on the parts that most excite and arouse you. But remember the red hat analogy? If you continue to fill your mind and your brain with that, with that, with that, with that, with that, well then whatever the that is, is the only thing that will arouse you. But what if men, for a minute, men, what if you were to take Solomon's advice and really just describe to your wife all the things you find beautiful about her? And if you don't find something beautiful about her, then buddy, you better repent and reach out and get help. We're here to help you. Because your wife is beautiful. She won't look at 30 like she did at 20. And she won't look at 40 like she did at 30. She won't look at 50 like she did at 40. And it'll keep going. Praise God, neither do you. You got a little less hair, right? A little extra around the mid-range. And that's okay. This is life and gravity and death. And it's happening to all of us because intimacy is about so much more than visual, but it is at least visual. So the question is, how am I making this person feel safe and loved and adored in this moment? And not just rushing into the moment. How am I stopping to build them up and fill their Verse, I'm going to skip verse 8, but there's nothing really seedy in it. I'm just, time-wise, i got to keep going. Verse 9, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. It rhymes. It's like a Dr. Seuss. And with one jewel of your necklace. This whole sister thing, don't be weirded out by it. Uh, familial language was a way to communicate closeness. In the same way that I would meet any of the girls in here who love Jesus, say, you're my sister in Christ. Any of the boys in here who love Jesus, say, you're my brother in Christ. He's just simply communicating, look, we are not just two separate people. We are now one. We are now family. But he's looking at her saying, look, of all the women that are out there, you, you have stolen my heart. I just look at you one time. I look at this necklace on your neck. Ah, oh, I just want to be with you. I love you. I adore you. He goes on, how delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. I've said this before, but when, when people lose a loved one, a lot of times they talk about how the pillow or the sheets or the clothes in the closet still smell like them. We just kind of adapt the smell, especially if you wear the same cologne or perfume or deodorant or hairspray or whatever over time. It becomes your thing, and it becomes easy to identify it, where if you walk down the road and somebody smells that on someone else, they immediately could think of you because that's the connection, and he's just celebrating. Ah, I want to be with you more than anything else. Your love is better than wine and your perfume. I just love it. It's just drawing. It's intoxicating me. But then he goes on and he says this, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. Whoever nicknamed this kind of kiss a French kiss didn't go back far enough. 
long before the French had ever thought this up, at least Hebrew poetry was already practicing deep, intimate tongue kisses. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He is just now drinking richly. He has adored her from head down, and he is just loving her. He is looking into her eyes, and now he's drinking deeply of her love. Verse 12, you are a garden locked up. My sister, my bride, you are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. This could be a sermon in itself. High schoolers, I really want you to tune in here. All that other stuff is fun for another day, but get this one. People who tell me the Bible never talks about God wanting you to wait until you're married didn't read it right, okay? I just saw a video, I told you last week, I just saw a video, it was on YouTube that popped up and some preacher pastor out there, a pastor out there, not every pastor is preaching God's word, saying the Bible never says that God wants you to wait till marriage. That's exactly what this passage is celebrating. He is about to have intimacy with his bride and he is talking about the fact that her springs are enclosed and sealed up. Throughout the Old Testament, I believe it's in Proverbs, maybe even Ecclesiastes, the idea of a spring is used to refer to that sexual part of you that is shared. And it says, when, when, when Solomon is giving wisdom to his son, he says, do not go and share your springs freely in the streets. What he's saying is, don't just go around and give this gift to anybody and everybody. It's supposed to be for this moment. And this husband is celebrating as he's with his bride. You have waited for me. And this is going to be a gift that I get the treasure. He goes on and he says in verse 13, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all of the finest spices. And uh, this is actually crazy erotic. So I'm simply going to say, notice he's celebrating the tastes and the smell of different parts of her body. In verse 15, it says, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. If you have your digital Bible, you use the version app, you'll notice there's a little asterisk here. If you click the little asterisk, you'll notice it. We aren't sure if it's you are or I am. It's because in the Hebrew, it's unclear. This is either her giving herself to him or this is him celebrating what she is. It doesn't really matter either way. The whole point is the moment is here. The moment has arisen. It is time. Enough talk. She says, let's go. Verse 16, awake north wind. And come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And here's the point I'm going to make. Notice that after all of this talk, both the groom and the bride are giving the other what they desire in this moment. Because he has cherished her and made her feel beautiful and special. He has celebrated her. By the way, he's been doing this outside of the bedroom for chapters now. He's been pursuing her and chasing her and winning her and romancing her and adoring her so that now she's like, can we stop waiting? Please, let's go. And he does, and it's beautiful for them. And so I just wonder, because see, the people who meet with me aren't the people who have healthy marriages, <laughs> Very rarely do I get an email saying, Matt, can I come in and meet with you? I just want to tell you how great everything is. 
By the way, if that's you, just send me an email because I don't have enough hours in the day. But usually when people reach out to me, it's because things are broken. And I'm like, we've tried fixing it, we can't. And usually when it's broken sexually, there's a few things going on. So out of what we've read so far, I just want to point out something so you don't miss them. Sometimes things are broken because one or both people are sexually not being faithful. This happens far too often. I know multiple couples, both in this community and in other communities, where one of them was unfaithful, so the other one, in order to even the playing field, went and was unfaithful. It's very, very difficult to come back from. I want to call you to faithfulness, but not just with your bodies, but with your mind. Sometimes things get broken sexually because one or both are reading romance novels or watching Hallmark movies and envisioning that their spouse is something other than what they are. Or perhaps they're going on to websites or communicating with somebody through social media and they're envisioning that their spouse is somebody other than what they are. See, the grass is never greener on the other side. The grass is always greenest wherever you water it. And so if you really want to see your spouse come alive, what would it look like to engage with them and water the garden that God has given you? So men, what would it look like if you were to start to pursue your wife's heart outside the bedroom? It might be a, a love note. It might be flowers. It might be taking her on a date, and it's not just talking about the schedule, but actually adoring her, sitting down and telling her how much she means to you. I promise you this, the grass will always wither and die if you don't water it. When you come into the bedroom moment, what would it look like, husbands, if you were to not just rush in to, you know, get the job done, but what if you were to actually celebrate her and talk about it and let her know she is absolutely beautiful, my darling? But I also know sometimes things get broken in marriage, and it's not fair to say it's always men this way and it's always women this way. It's never always one way or the other. But oftentimes today, in a two-working-home environment, wives are just overwhelmed and far too busy. And so what happens is the couple doesn't have time to connect outside the bedroom. So he might be ready to go if she's ready to go, but she's got way too many things on her list. She's just overwhelmed. She's stressed. And because many times in the church, I meet good women, great women. They love Jesus. They've got all these commitments and responsibilities to ways they're pouring into others and their own family and kids. Man, thank God, Proverbs 31, women should be celebrated, never made to feel like less. But sex is a gift between a husband and a wife, a gift that either brings you together or will push you apart. You can have sex and get further apart because you're being a selfish lover and you're not really in there to care for and meet the emotional, physical, sexual, relational needs of the other person, or because you're broken outside the bedroom, it just doesn't happen. So in the same way that I'm challenging the men to pursue your heart and make you feel loved and cherished and adored, women, um, if you never take the chance to give yourself to him, even when you're not in the mood, you're going to discourage him over time from trying. I love this quote by Tim Keller again, back to the book. He says, with sex, we were trying to be vulnerable to each other, to give each other the gift of bare-faced rejoicing in one another and to know the pleasure of giving one another pleasure. And as the weeks went by and then the years, we did it better and better. <laughs> yes, it means making love sometimes when one or even both of you aren't in the mood. Both? But sex and a marriage 
done to give joy rather than to impress can change your mood on the spot. The best sex makes you want to weep tears of joy, not bask in the glow of a good performance. I see there's a difference. I want to make sure that our church is not pornified. I wanna make sure that our church is filled with people who love Jesus enough to say, God, help me, help me. Notice in chapter five, verse one, I have come into my garden, he says, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. In other words, the moment's over. <laughs> that was pretty fast. And so what happened was he just literally, we're done. But this is key. Don't miss this. Why is this in here? Because he celebrated, he celebrated. She said, take me, I'm yours. He said, okay, the moment is done. And then the next thing happens. Now, don't put it up yet. The very next thing is really awkward if we don't know what's happening. The next thing says, eat friends and drink, drink of your fill of love. Hmm. Okay, so in the book Songs of Solomon, we have the husband. If he's saying this, that's weird. Eat friends, well, what do you mean friends? <laughs> it's me and you. We have the wife, equally as weird. Eat friends, what? We have literally the friends. And some translators will put this in the voice of the friends. So throughout the book, Songs of Solomon, you have the girl talking to her friends and the friends respond. And sometimes Solomon will address the friends or the husband will address the friends. I don't think that's what's happening here because that means the friends are there celebrating with them. That is equally as weird. It is possible, but equally as weird. But what if, what if this is the voice of God? This is what I was taught by my Old Testament Hebrew professor. I didn't make this up. What if this is the voice of God looking down from heaven over the marriage bed and he's going, yes! That's exactly what I made that for. That's what I built that for. That's when, that's where. Great job, guys. Well done. Keep going. If I'm not mistaken, this is the exact dead center of the book. God gave you this as a gift to be enjoyed and shared between a man who loves his wife and a wife who loves her husband. But I know this message lands in a lot of different places depending on where you are in this room and what's going on in your life. So I wanna give you a moment to sit with God and hear from him and not Matt Nickerson and all the silly jokes and pictures and all the things, okay? I put together some questions to guide us. So here, here's the questions I want you to sit with for just a couple minutes. Number one, are you being a selfless lover to your spouse in your marriage? And if not, why? Let me just say, it could be, it could be that uh, he's done something to hurt you deeply and it's not healed. And then we need to get in and heal that. How do we work on that? It might be that she doesn't feel safe or maybe she's just being selfish with her time and energy. I don't know. Maybe one of you has been traumatized. Maybe you're just a sinner. Now that's for married people, but this could be single or married people here. Is there any area where you need to ask God to heal your heart, soul, mind, and body related to sex? Years ago, a, a, a friend said to me, you know, Matt, you keep asking God for strength to resist temptation, but have you ever asked God to just take it away or to heal what's driving that? And it just changed me because I'd never even considered inviting God in to heal the brokenness. And lastly, is there any change you sense God is telling you to make in your approach to sex? I want you to ask him for the courage to make that change, to take that step. I want him to do this. I'm going to pray over you, and I'm just going to give you a few minutes to just sit with God and pray some of these things. Actually, open your mouth to him, and then watch him meet you in this place. Ready?
Father, we love you. I thank you for putting a chapter in the Bible that is all about the romantic love between a husband and a wife. God, I pray first for my single brothers and sisters, whether they're middle school, high school, or up, or whatever. Father, that they would make a renewed commitment today to honor you with their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. That they would stay faithful to you no matter how hard it is, no matter the pressure and temptations they face. God, I pray for all the married couples in this room. If there's brokenness related to sex and sexuality, I pray, God, that you would come into this place and do something that only can be described as your Holy Spirit working in them and in us. Heal, restore, renew, refresh. Father, I pray you'd bring couples together in a very powerful way. And God, I pray for those couples who are doing really, really well, and the sermon is just encouraging them. We're doing good. God, I pray that you would meet them in a unique way in this place. And just... Help them to continue to lay a foundation for others to follow their example. But would you meet us right now and speak to us? Speak to us, God, that we would hear your words and know what to do. In Jesus' name.